0: I told you that you could have an ethical supply chain while cutting costs and boosting profits at the same time. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. The conventional thinking about ethical supply chains is that they entail a certain amount of additional cost. The reward comes purely in the form of doing the right thing while, not incidentally, protecting the reputation of your brand. But a new report from the World Economic Forum, produced with Accenture, refutes that notion. It argues that ethical supply chains generate a triple advantage, a positive impact on local economies... Improved sustainability and environmental protection, and commercial benefits. They can take the form of a 20% boost in revenues from responsible products, a 9 to 16% reduction in supply chain costs, and a 15 to 30% increase in brand value. Joining me on this episode is Mark Pearson, Senior Managing Director of Strategy and Operations for Accenture. He talks about 31 proven practices that the report recommends for companies looking to pursue ethical supply chains. And by the way, he explains just what an ethical supply chain is. So here is my conversation with Mark Pearson. Mark Pearson, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much, Bob. It's nice to be with you.
0: Mark, what is an ethical supply chain? How would you define that term?
1: I think out of the research that we did, what we found is an ethical supply chain is one that combines uh, not only sustainability and sustainable advantage, uh, but also is good for local economic development. So the local economies within which that supply chain operates uh, whilst also um, having commercial advantage. So
0: uh, the aspects of ethics that constitute a supply chain, I mean, can you outline some of those for me? What are some of the supply chain activities that are subject to ethical consideration?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, as, I, as I said, I think that the the critical element here is that ethical supply chains today are moving beyond the classic, uh, carbon neutrality um, topics that we've been dealing with for the last five to ten years uh, in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, graphic sustainability topics, and has moved into uh, new areas of um, be- being good for the world. Um, so that means topics like uh, water usage, like energy usage, but equally uh, into uh, topics around what impact is your supply chain ha- uh, having? Not only your direct supply chain, but what we call the N-tier supply chain. So your suppliers, your suppliers, suppliers, what impact are they having on the economies in which your products are being made? That may not be directly out of your factories, but may will be in uh, manufacturing sites in China or in Bangladesh. Uh, and uh, the ethical supply chain, which w- will be one, uh, which is uh, clear of any violations of human rights or uh, wage exploitation in those uh, in those economies.
0: Yeah, so it's a pretty broad definition. Well, let's back up for a moment and tell me about the report. It's called Beyond Supply Chains. It's from the World Economic Forum, and it's produced with Accenture, I believe. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of the report.
1: Yeah, certainly, Bob. So going back to summer of 2014, World Economic Forum, uh, the Global Agenda Council on the Future of Supply Chain and Logistics wanted to do a piece of research to look at the impact that the supply chains were having specifically in local economies and principally local economies in uh, developing markets. Uh, this came on the back of um, a couple of fairly major and well-publicized disasters the Rana Plaza disaster in uh, Bangladesh, uh, a number of others around the world. And uh, so the the World Economic Forum wanted to use its um, influence to understand how supply chains could be improved uh, using both uh, commercial organizations and the intergovernmental organizations that World Economic Forum work with. So uh, we embarked on uh, this piece of research under that uh, initial banner, And as we looked at it, and as we started working with the member firms of uh, the World Economic Forum, we actually found something quite interesting, which was we found a set of practices which organizations are implementing, which serve to not only improve supply chains in terms of local economies that uh, organizations are working in, but also impacted sustainability, as well as providing a commercial advantage to those organisations, and we call that the AAA advantage. What we did out of um, on the back of that, as we uh, sat, started to identify these practices, which was that we looked across the supply chain and developed a landscape of 31 practices uh, which had advantages at least two out of those three areas: commercial advantage to the firm, uh, socio-economic um, um, advantage to local economies. And environmental or sustainability advantages, uh, we developed business cases, business cases behind each of those practices, and then also a set of reference cases, use cases of organisations that are working uh, working in those areas, and that's become a template for how organisations can think about best practices for implement- the implementation of ethical supply chains.
0: Okay, so triple A referring to those three elements. I mean, they don't necessarily all start with A, but that is the the that the phrase is a reference to that, right?
1: Correct. Exactly. So, okay. I guess we're playing slightly on the triple uh, A in terms of rating agencies, but it's uh, it's looking at really those three uh, constituents of what make up make up a uh, what we believe make up a, tri- a, a truly ethical supply chain, and one that is actually then mutually reinforcing because actually it is good for organizations commercially. There isn't a trade-off in this. This is about things that organizations should do because they're commercially beneficial as well as uh, having uh, socio-environmental value. Did you come in with that
0: assumption going in? I mean, when you launched the study, when you began, were you already assuming that there were these commercial advantages or did that sort of come out of the work that you did in formulating the study?
1: That's a very good question, Bob. The answer to your question is is no. At least it wasn't our hypothesis. Uh, It's as we started the work uh, that we actually identified that there were these set of practices which are, you might almost call call them no-brainers, right? Uh, Why aren't organizations doing these things anyway? So it's at that point that we really put the focus on this landscape of practices that were the things that organizations really should be doing. And, of course, a lot of organizations are doing uh, some of them, um, but as we sit down with um, you know, major Fortune 500 corporations today and we look at this landscape, it's very easy to start uh, identifying areas where organizations still have a long way to go uh, and can generate both commercial advantage and uh, socio-environmental value by uh, embarking on some of these initiatives.
0: What was involved in the actual legwork of the study? I mean, were you kind of on the ground talking to workers, talking to companies, talking to government? Who were you, who were you conversing with and what kind of research were you doing to come up with these conclusions?
1: So There were fundamentally two things that we did. We uh, did a set of uh, secondary research on um, you know, publicly available information. And then secondly, uh, from a primary perspective, we used um, the members of the World Economic Forum uh, plus a few other interested organizations who we knew would have a point of view in this area, especially organizations that we believed are uh, working best practices in, in this area. So we en- ended up interviewing about 35 uh, companies and governmental organizations uh, to um, validate the practices that we had, validate the framework, the initial hypothesis framework we put together, uh, and really drill out both the framework itself – To uh, to ensure that what we had in there were practices which were truly implementable and were being implemented today, as well as the uh, the business cases, the business case and the use cases that sat behind that.
0: I want to look at some of those 31 proven practices. We don't have time to cover every one, obviously, but can we deal with some of the top ones? Like, start with uh, what you think might be one of the more interesting practices that you uncovered in the course of doing this study.
1: So I think uh, probably one of the most comprehensive areas um, of the area of supplier relationships and how a lot of large, especially consumer goods organizations, are now moving to a lot more local sourcing than they were in, in the past and also sourcing from sustainable suppliers uh, that they have much more direct control over. So where they may have been previously sourcing through cooperatives or or through some form of trading organization, Uh, a lot of them have uh, started to work directly with farmers, with local farmers, and have really put a lot of emphasis on building up strong local supply bases. And once they do that, they also then start investing uh, in the local region. They start building skills around those, uh, those local suppliers. Uh, and they start creating a uh, you know a, a real win-win around uh, around local sourcing. When you say local, do you mean they're
0: sourcing in the same region that they're selling the product? so they may be selling
1: the product, but more importantly, they'll be manu- manufacturing the product as well.
0: So, in other words, instead of reaching out to a farmer thousands of miles away, they're trying to consolidate. All of this in a smaller regional area over which they have greater direct control is is that the deal
1: yeah so there, there are multiple different examples and they may, uh, either be doing that or they may also be looking for for direct control of sourcing, which they may be then shipping to plants at more significant distance away from uh, than than simply in in that local environment but so they 're taking much more direct control over their, um, their their sourcing activities rather than working through some form of agency where they have no idea uh, what the uh, the ethical behaviour is in the supply chains they're operating with it. So this this, hap- this happens for instance for you know for barley for the um the brewing industry, SAB Miller, very good example. Um uh, and you know so other well known you know free free trade type activities.
0: How are they monitoring supplier behavior on an ongoing basis? Is that part of the proven practices, and what types of mechanisms do they have in place to make sure that their suppliers are keeping up uh, with their commitment?
1: So, obviously, if they've moved to more direct sourcing and local sourcing, um, in the way I just outlined, then they've got much better control, uh, direct control over those sources, and they've got you know, much much better a uh, direct intervention into the local economies. Um, they're finding in this in this way actually that their prices are not impacted, uh, that they have much greater loyalty from those uh, lo- that local sourcing they're actually uh, uh, they're actually doing, and they have as you said much greater uh, direct control. Where they don't have that control, another pr- you know proven practice is is clearly to get much uh, tighter control over your n-tier supply chain, so into your supply supplier uh even you know three or four levels down the chain, so there is a very significant emergence of practices around the you know, audit and control of the uh the manufacturing locations that are supplying into your in, into your supply chain uh, so as we look at what's happening in uh, China and Bangladesh and you know, a lot of the far eastern manufacturing economies uh, organizations like uh Nike or a Unilever. Have to be absolutely uh, secure in understanding what uh, what the practices are occurring in the uh, in their direct supply chains, even if it's two or three uh, uh, levels down, and they're using them. Uh, or local organizations to perform audits and uh, uh, and the reference checks around uh, their supply chains.
0: You mentioned the Rana Plaza factory disaster in Bangladesh, uh, which caused a number of textile manufacturers and retailers to band together in groups that vowed to do a better job of monitoring working conditions in Bangladesh factories. Among your proven practices, are there any cooperative or collaborative efforts among multiple companies such as that?
1: Yes, yeah, so both in uh, in sourcing and manufacturing, uh, that, uh, th- those are some of the practices that emerge. In- Interestingly, Bob, let me take this now to a slightly different area. The collaborative area is uh, one where you're seeing a lot of interest in the transport area, for instance. So we did quite a lot of um, uh, interesting research around how transport is managed, uh, especially in Europe where there's a very significant volume of transport that uh, moves around Europe on backhauls uh, with uh, no product on board. And even when uh, trucks are moving, uh, they're moving with relatively low utilisation. So utilisation rates uh, around um, 70 75%. So if you actually do the calculation, this goes back a couple of years now, but uh, there was a calculation done which said that in Europe, we are running with on average, 47% utilisation of vehicles across Europe. So, when you see a vehicle in Europe, there's a 47% chance it will have an average capacity utilisation of only 47%. We would never run factories at that sort of utilisation. So, what we're seeing now as a practice is organisations coming together to collaborate to optimise usage use of transportation across Europe, and this is especially interesting in city logistics where we're starting to see regulations actually emerge uh, around the utilization of vehicles in cities in order to minimize both pollution as well as accidents, as well as congestion in cities.
0: Well, Mark, in these cities, you're, the kind of collaboration you're talking about, are the actual shippers themselves collaborating, combining their shipments and then tendering them to a carrier to, uh, to reduce the amount of unused capacity? Or is it the carrier's responsibility uh, to, to bring them together under its aegis and, and do it that way? I mean, in what yeah. direction is this collaboration yeah. happening?
1: It's, it's, a, it's a very good question, Bob. And actually, you're seeing the emergence of, of both models, potentially. Uh, although, in the end, the shippers are, are reluctant to accept one carrier uh, that is performing that role uh, for competitive reasons, of course. So what we're seeing now is the emergence potentially of a trustee that uh, represents multiple shippers uh, who then takes their volumes, consolidates it, and then on behalf of the uh, shippers, uh, selects and utilizes carriers uh, to optimize uh, both uh, timing and utilization in cities. So I think we're seeing, you yeah, know, this is an emerging model, um, but uh, I think there, is, uh, there are some interesting uh, different models uh, that you're seeing in different uh, different places, and some quite innovative thinking going on around um, how do you actually share the benefits of uh, what would come out of doing something like this?
0: All right, so we've talked a little bit about transportation, and we've talked a little bit about working conditions and human rights and the like. What are some of the other practices? Like, let's say on the other others on the environmental side that are calculated to reduce carbon emissions. What type of proven practices are companies engaging in that might achieve that goal?
1: Clearly, the efforts we just talked about right now around collaborative transportation works in that, uh, uh, in that space. There is um, a lot of work being done around uh, slow supply chain. So as we look at how do you optimize carbon utilization within a supply chain, it doesn't necessarily mean doing everything with the highest responsiveness at the highest speed. So supply chain directors direct are having to now work with their commercial organisations uh, to try to balance off um, the classic uh, responsiveness and speed and agility uh, with the uh, mechanisms which actually build in both cost advantage and sustainability advantage, and that we often call flow for sup- supply chain. Uh, and then clearly in the production environment. Uh, There is a lot of work that can be done by organizations and in many very high, uh, highly asset intensive business, these uh, benefits have already been taken, but around energy reduction, waste, uh, water use, and overall uh, emissions uh, in the manufacturing process. But there are still a lot of organizations who have not... Uh, implemented the types of practices that uh, much more asset-intensive organizations have been focusing on for a while.
0: I wonder if you're going to have some problem selling that concept of slow supply chains. Maybe that's an unfortunate term at a time when companies are are obsessed with the idea of speeding up the, the movement of product yep. to market. That might yep. be an unfortunate choice of words.
1: Well, it's a concept that's been around for, uh, for, for quite a while. And I think... Um, as uh, you think it's very normally applied to shipping or, or shipping over long distances? And then, do you use the the six to eight weeks it takes to get product from Asia, or do you fly it? And there's um, and when you use the, the the shipping lane, you go faster, you go slower, so you take eight weeks, or do you take six weeks. And if those types of uh, issues that organisations are actually are actually dealing with, and and are balancing out in the overall equation of cost, service, and uh, being sustainable as of supply chain
0: I would imagine that out of these thirty one supply chain practices, some would be easier to implement than others. What do you feel, or did you reach any conclusions about this, that which of those thirty one might be the most challenging to implement, create the most obstacles or difficulties?
1: So I think what we found is we, we looked we did look at implementation criteria is that different organizations have got different priorities or different asset structures would implement these um, priorities, these, uh, these products, sorry, these uh, um, practices in a different sequence and would find uh, one practice more or less uh, easy to implement than, uh, than the other. I think what we, what we certainly found as we had a lot of the conversations was that as organizations have talk classically about ethical supply chains, They they thought much more about manufacturing and logistics. What we have done in this study is to look at really at the end-to-end supply chain. So we've looked from product design through sourcing, the classic manufacturing logistics, right the way through to end of life. And that was very revealing, I think, for a lot of organizations for two reasons. First of all, because it gave you a much more holistic view of where the benefits might be. Uh, you know, we haven't talked yet about uh, topics like packaging, making products uh, more as we talk about circular, uh, so uh, the reusable and how you recycle product back into uh, the manufacturing environment. So we've, we've really looked at the product development cycle and the end of life cycle as well as everything in the middle. And that was quite, I think, revealing for um, for, for many organisations. But it also meant that you could really balance the trade-offs in uh, in this uh, these activities. Uh, and it and it did, does mean that as you look at these activities, you have to pull multiple functions from an organisation into the discussion. So you, this cannot be now just a logistics or a manufacturing discussion. It requires people from product design. It requires people from the commercial organization, as you start thinking about um, how you would build sustainable products, for instance, reduce packaging, reduce the number of different types of products you're, 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 you're going to be producing. So it's, it was quite a revealing and you know interesting discussion around uh, implementation, which was also quite differentiated, as I said, by type of business.
0: It seems to be, or up to this point, has been the conventional wisdom that sustainability and ethical supply chains have a cost, that companies have to spend more in order to achieve this, and they're doing it for the good of the earth. And yet you're saying in this report that there are actual underlying commercial benefits, that companies applying these practices can increase revenue up to 20% for responsible products. So I guess... um, this is pretty groundbreaking in the sense that it's good business as well as good ethics in order to have an ethical supply chain, right?
1: Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's right, Bob. That's why I think what's important about these the specific practices that we actually went and looked at what is the benefit in each of those three areas, um, the commercial benefit, the, the sustainability benefit, and the local yeah, economic, uh, local uh, environmental, the local economic benefits would be achieved. And we found there wasn't a trade-off. You've know, you got the, each of these practices had benefit, as I said earlier, in at least two of those areas. Um, and that's what generated, as uh, so we looked at a baseline for a consumer goods company, if you took the baseline and you implemented all of these 31 practices, which of course um, you know, no organization probably would go after all at the same time, we found uh, based on our business case definition uh, potential revenue revenue uplift of uh, between five and twenty percent, uh, supply chain cost reductions between nine and sixteen percent, um potential carbon gas reductions of uh, between thirteen and twenty two percent. so pretty significant numbers um, and of course this is all based on uh, a, a one particular industry baseline. Uh, but what we have provided in the report is a business case calculator which allows organizations to use their own data uh, to work out what the you know, net net uplift in revenue costs and uh, reduction in carbon gases uh, might actually might actually be.
0: Okay. Well, we're almost out of time, but I just want to ask you one more question, and that is that are we to conclude from the results of this study that the actions of companies toward creating ethical supply chains are, in fact, pervasive – or is this a self-selected sampling of companies who are already doing this? In other words, just how involved is the world of global business in creating ethical supply chains today?
1: So I think what we found in the report, um, Bob, is that there are some great practices around that the, the bar has been raised over the last uh, four to five years, uh, but uh, there is still a long way to go for many organizations and there is uh, great potential if organizations really attack the topic of ethical supply chain in a coherent and consistent way across functional boundaries. It's not a natural event in most supply chain organizations and what we, I think uh, we and WEST were trying to do in this report was highlight the sort of things that organizations can and should be looking at in their supply chain strategies to take ethical supply chains to the next level.
0: All right. Well, Mark Pearson, I want to thank you so much for being with us today to reveal some of the results of this study with the World Economic Forum called Beyond Supply Chains. We will link to the report in the show notes to this episode. But thanks so much for helping us to understand the progress that has been made and some of the valuable lessons that we can derive from that. Thanks again. Thank you, Bob. That was my conversation with Mark Pearson of Accenture, talking about the benefits of forging an ethical supply chain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast. for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.